Welcome to Authentic Living with Roxanne, a place where we have conscious conversations about things that really matter in our lives. And now, here's your host, Roxanne Derhage. Hi, everyone. It's uh, Roxanne Durhaj of Authentic Living with Roxanne. Thanks for tuning in again this week. Uh, today, I have a special guest, Matthew Dixon. We haven't had such a great conversation um, with so much impact uh, that I decided to turn the podcast into a two-part series. Be sure to tune in next week for part two. Matthew brings um, a wealth of information around uh, the area of mental illness, um, having a bit of lived experience as long, uh, along with um, having worked or continued to work with developing countries around uh, the arena of mental illness. So Matthew, thanks for, so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Roxanne. Yeah, he's got an amazing uh, name for his business. It's called MindAid. So that immediately takes me to a, a visual and I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of the Band-Aid, Matthew, and then I'm thinking about what the Mind-Aid would do because, you know, kind of where, where do you need to place it, I'm thinking. Um, and of course, with mental illness, we'll talk a little bit more about how elusive that could be based on what we know. So Matthew, um, Matthew and I met, um, he reached out on LinkedIn and uh, the synergies around the things that I talk about, about mental uh, wellness and um, mental well-being was something that captured um, my attention to his background. So, Matthew, tell us a little bit about. Obviously, you're doing this this um, work in the world, which is much needed. But your beginnings probably weren't the beginnings I would assume that you wanted to take to get into this field. So, why don't you kind of share with us kind of what happened, and you know a bit about what gets you here today, working in in. Uh, in the arena of um, mental health and mental illness? Sure. So I'm Canadian and I'm 49 now. At 22, I went to get help because I wasn't feeling good. And I was going uh, through university at the time, uh, almost done my university. I was taking engineering and I muddled through university. I, I would tell friends some things like I feel this way or, or I feel that way. And they were the onset of my symptoms of schizophrenia. Which so what I, kind of feelings were you starting to have? Like, was it like kind of like you were feeling down or um, what kind of symptoms were you experiencing? Cause I'm thinking at that age, you know, you're going through a lot of things as a yeah. 22 year old young man at that point. Yeah. Uh, before then, like my uh, early mid teens, I was, I don't have many complaints about my life. I mean, I probably would complain about some stuff back then, but it was nothing really. I had a pretty, pretty good life and relatively healthy and whatnot. And so symptoms that started to creep in were uh, just loss of energy. Uh, didn't feel like uh, would get tired walking upstairs. And then some other things over about a four or five year period, some symptoms crept in. Like I felt like I was watching TV it, uh, I, I felt like I was seeing things in two dimensions, not three. And that was sort of the start of the disconnectedness from uh, the world that you can get. 
and I would start to not be able to remember what I did the day before. And, but these were still, these were mild symptoms as much as they were distressing and, and somewhat bizarre for me. I, well, actually another one was, I felt like I had a, a brain transplant. It felt like I had actually had gone through surgery and someone had put somebody else's brain in my, in my skull and taken my brain out. And I was thinking and doing and saying things that just, just weren't me. And, but I could still do things. I was getting mostly A's in engineering. I was living on my own. I actually bicycled, bicycled across Canada when I was 20 in the middle of university. I went on the rowing team. I did a triathlon, but the symptoms crept in a little bit. But when the disease hit at the end of university, when I was 22 in 1994, it, it hit hard. I went from muddling through life, being able to do most things to just curled up in a ball, shaking, not knowing whether you're going to live or die from one moment to the next. It's uh, you, it hit very hard. And anyway, I, I got on a medication uh, that worked, although I described it as working glacially slowly. I, I noticed an improvement in my health once a week, every single week for my entire recovery. And yeah, that was, uh, that was sort of how it all started out. So you said, so when you said, uh, I'm curious about this, you said you felt like my old brain was taking out and somebody else's brain was put in. So was it, give me an example of something, uh, Matthew, because I'm curious to like, what, what was kind of starting to happen? Was it, you know, um, something as simple as your taste change or um, oh, well. thought about things changed or how you felt about things changed? Uh, just most of my thoughts I would do and say things that just weren't me. I mean, they weren't really that out of the ordinary, but it was, uh, yeah, with the disease, hallucinations are common. Auditory and visual hallucinations affect 75% of people with schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. I was in the 25% that didn't. I never saw or heard anything that wasn't there, which I'm thankful for. I know often with mental illness, addiction can be a problem as well. I never had any problems with addiction, thankfully. And, but I, your, your thinking gets very muddled. It's, uh, your thinking is not clear. It's kind of like, it's kind of like if you take a book and you take all the words and mix them all up, words from any part in the book, you mix them totally, totally mixed up and you try to read that book. That's sort of how my thoughts are. You can, you can, you can get people like there's the word, I don't know, tractor, or there's the word farm, or there's the word highway. You can get a sort of gist of what you're talking about, but it's it just, it's, I wouldn't want to read a book like that. It just wouldn't make any sense. <laughs> so visually the words are, are being altered by, by. No, it's just, uh, that's sort of how that, that's, uh, that's just how my thoughts were as if I okay. usually, okay. Yeah, not, not not actually reading a book or anything. It's uh, it's just very unclear thinking. But at the same time, you still can think clearly on another level because I I went I went to get help myself. I uh, I didn't have to get uh, intervention by other people. I wanted to get help. I said, okay, I'll go live and in, went into the psych ward. Lived in a group home for three years. I went and finished my degree. I had to fail out of five or six courses. 
and I went back and got those courses. So I had, so I had to make the decision, you know, this term, I'll go and take this course or this course. I'll go up to, and I, I, made, I was making decisions like this through my day. Okay. Like I'll go for a walk at some time today, or I'll do this or I'll do that. Right. There's still a part of your brain that thinks clearly, but it's, it's trying, it's like trying to think while there's just millions of speakers playing 17 different rock songs in your head. It's like an overstimulation oh. where, um, oh. you know, and, you know, I know that, you know, even as I'm getting older, Matthew, I find that too much stimulation. And I, when I was young, I would study with music and all. And now as I'm getting older, you know, and I work, you know, I'm in my office, in my home alone. And if I go somewhere else to work sometimes, um, stimuli that before would have never gotten to me. I'm like, oh my goodness, I can't strain out and keep that quiet mind. And so that was something that you start to struggle with, say, around that that age, 22. Oh yeah, I mean, I in the psych ward, I would have to be in a room with nothing in it and just just and sit there for hours, just trying to get some uh, just stimuli overload for sure. Sounds, uh, noises, sights. Just, it felt like it felt like I was living in a war zone. In fact, somebody saw me walking down the street where I live and they said, I saw Matthew the other day and he looked like he was walking through a world of flying glass. And I'm like, yeah, that's what it felt like. And I've heard other people say, and like I said earlier, it's like, you feel like you're living in a war zone mm. and it's, it's, there's nothing going on. It's a bright, sunny day. There's a bright, sunny day right in front of my nose. It's all around me and I can't, feel it. I can't experience it. I can't enjoy it. It's right there. I see it. I'm not actually in a war zone. I'm, it's right there and I can't break through it. It's like I've got this, this bubble around me that I just can't break through. With all the shrapnel coming at you and you're, you're oh. trying to protect yourself against the shrapnel, even though in reality, like you said, your friend saw you, it was just a normal day, but you're responding to all the hallucinations and, and, and paranoia around you. Well, I never had any, well, I never had any hallucinations. It didn't, I, if, if I had to like paint a picture of what I saw in front of me on any given day, I'd paint it exactly as it was. It was, I, I could, but it just, there's, it's just a feeling. It's the, it's like if you're on a roller coaster or in something terrible, like bungee jumping or terrifying or in war, it's, it's picture yourself just blind and, and you've got a, a nice picture of a nice sunny day in front of you, but it's the sounds it's just, it just, it's a feeling. It's a feeling okay. of being, of being, have having too much come at you. And it, it's not so much things actually visually uh, coming at me too much. It's, it's just a feeling of it. And it's, it's very, very scary, very scary and tormenting. It's because it, it just never leaves. It's, right. it's uh, but at the same time, before I get too far into how, how awful this is for people listening who are going through it or who have someone uh, they're trying to help go through it. There is hope. Things get better. At the start, it's pretty bad, mm-hmm. but things can lessen as time goes on and you can get treatment and things can lessen. And when the pain lessens, it allows you to keep going for longer and keep fighting and keep fighting and keep fighting. That's what it was with me. And it's, I want to instill in people the sense of hope, the mm-hmm. sense of, uh, for example, Navy SEALs, when they go through their training, training to become a Navy SEAL, they're taught that they're capable of 20 times more than they think they are. And the 20 times is sort of a random number, but it's, and that's what I've, that's what I've been trying to tell people for years is you are capable of so much more than you think. Mm-hmm. And it's, 
you think you can't do this or you can't do that. <laughs> when push comes to shove and you have to, oh my heavens, it's uh, yeah. it's interesting what you can do when when you've been you come to to a point where you realize, wow, I have to do something and I have capacity. But of course, it's the steps to get you there. So you, you know, said you willingly went, but what happens? And I've dealt with families over my years in practice where someone is um, actively um, schizophrenic, but they're not wanting, they might take the medication for a bit, they feel normal, and then they go off and then they don't want to go back on. So, but your, yours, your path was a bit different. You said. Yeah, that, that never happened with me. I, when, when I was told that I have schizophrenia and that I'm going to have to be on a medication and no one says it's going to go away in two weeks or two months or two years or 20 years. There's, there's nothing like that. They can't put any deadline on that at all. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of unknown with that. It's also, will I ever get better? Will I ever get my health back? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of unknown with the drug. As much as I was disheartened, that I had to be on a medication. I mean, it's nothing to me now. I just pop a pill at the end of the day and that's it. It's, it's nothing. But in the early days, it was, plus I was so depressed, I couldn't think of things in a more positive light, but I was very burdened by this having to take a pill. Mm -hmm. And, but at the same time, as much as I didn't want to have to take it, I was like, get that into me because it was one of the very few things I could do to get, get myself better. I counted the I didn't count the minutes down, like literally, but I all day I, I yearned to take my pill at the end of the day. I, as the more I could get that into me, the more days I could get that drug into me, the faster I could get uh, get better. So, so yeah. let's talk. Let's talk about your path to recovery and what that was like. Like you said, you you know you volunteer, you recognize. Okay, I've I've got this diagnosis, which oftentimes a lot of people struggle with diagnoses. Right. They're like, um, you know, I don't want to accept that I've got this. Right. And, you know, I often say to people, you know, if it's, you know, if you if you're diabetic, <laughs> you're not going to say, hey, I'm not going to take that insulin because so it's it's generally when it's, a you know, kind of a medical, not really to mental that people are more accepting. But as soon as it ends up being, you know, like, um, you know, I've got, you know, I've got chronic depression, for instance, people try to think, well, well, I don't want to accept that just because it, it means, you know, um, something's wrong with me. And I say, well, if, if, if your body's telling you, you know, that it, it takes that much to kind of get level every single day. And when you drop it, it's kind of like, you know, a free fall. And then it takes that much more to come back up. Obviously your body and your brain is giving you indication that there's need for something different, but most people struggle with that accepting, you know, um, that I have this disorder and they'll try everything else, but until they realize at some point they've been living, like you said, that, that sheer amount of pain. And then yeah. they start to, you know, think, well, maybe, maybe I need to accept this, but sometimes it's a grieving process that I found with people that have, have had a diagnosis. Okay. That was not with me. And I have no mm -hmm. idea why I'll, I'll probably never know why I, so how it worked was they, I went to the hospital saying I don't feel good. And this is like 1994. So I hadn't learned about bipolar or OCD or depression mm -hmm. or anxiety. This uh, mental illness, I knew nothing about. And Prozac had maybe just been invented or something. I don't know. But 
anyway, so I said, I don't feel good. They took me to the psych ward. They started doing tests. And after so many weeks, they said, well, we think you have schizophrenia. And I'm like, whoa, that's a bomb to drop. <laughs> and so anyway, I asked a nurse, I said, how long might it take before I get better? And she said, uh, sometimes it takes people a couple of years before they get better. I have no idea where she got that two year. It's just a sort of almost like a random number to pull out of your hat. But uh, that's all I really had to go on. And I said, well, can I live with this pain for two years? And I said, and just out of the blue, just out of the blue, no, I didn't weigh any pros and cons, nothing. I said, I'm going to try to fight this. I'm going to put my life on hold. I accept the fact that I will do nothing that I enjoy for two years. If when the two-year mark comes up, I'm better, I will pick my life up from where I left off and carry on. And so anyway, the two-year mark came and went. I still wasn't good. I was living in a group home. And I said, okay, well, I'll try for another year. Another year came and went and still wasn't good, still in a group home. And after that, I just, uh, you kind of reach a point of, I fought this hard. I'm still improving. I keep improving. I kept improving every week. And I said, I can't turn back now. I, I just, I just kept going. And it was February 11th of this year, 2021, where my symptoms just stopped for good. So and from 1994 to 2021, and you were taking the medications routinely, um, yeah. you, were you involved um, with a therapist throughout that time as well, Matthew? So I saw a psychiatrist in the early years, like probably the 90s. I think the last time I saw a psychologist or a counselor, I saw a counselor weekly for six, seven, eight years. So probably 2000, 2002, somewhere in there. I stopped. Uh, he said, I think you're free to go, Matthew, sort of thing. So I got a job working uh, in 97 and I'm uh, still working there now uh, with the government. And I, I, in 2000, I started, I went to the bookstore and started reading books on how to get myself better. Mm -hmm. And apart from taking my medication and getting counseling, uh, the other things I could do were mostly lifestyle choices, a uh, lifestyle, uh, you know. Tell us about some of those things, those lifestyle things that you did. Like, what did you yeah. start to learn, right? Because of course we know that movement has everything to do with brain chemistry and, yeah. you know, but what kind of things did you, how was therapy different from what you did and learned on your own? So with all these books I was reading, a lot of them were world-class people and I could go straight to the source, straight into their heads for five, six, seven, eight hours, however long it takes you to read a book and learn from them. And I, I just devoured books. On a little side note here, a friend of mine, her mom had a stroke and she read voraciously. And so many months later, she walked out with, uh, I think, something like a 98% of her brain. Uh, she was not, she was hardly damaged at all. And the doctor said that she had reader's brain, which I've never heard of before, but just uh, keep that in your back pocket for anyone listening. I, I'd like to learn more about that. I haven't found anything online. Anyway, I read voraciously and I read books on people skills because for me, uh, talking to people was painful with my disease. I, I, it was hard to read uh, social cues more. I read books on fitness and diet. And uh, yeah, it's, I, I had to learn, relearn a lot of the things I already knew. And plus I was learning things, learning how to do those things better too. Mm -hmm. So 
can I give a little tip to your to your? Oh, absolutely! No, no, absolutely. Anything because I think for anybody listening, Matthew, that say struggles, it's important that they hear like to actually hear someone's path that has been through it. And I'm going to assume that you um, continue this um, these healthy lifestyles every single day as much as possible. Um, so yeah. please, do please share that. Yeah, one of the top top books I recommend to people is Verbal Judo: The Gentle Art of Persuasion by George Thompson, Thompson with a P. And he's a police officer and he developed this system of how to deal with people, uh, not with, with weapons, this is all words, how to, how to talk people out of situations and, and get them, uh, as a police officer, that's what you have to do. And the book is written for the general public. And it's, he says, if it doesn't work on the street, it won't work at home. And he, he says, if you're trying to get your teenager to take out the trash, it'll work with them. <laughs> and it has helped me so much, this, this way of dealing with people. It has helped me so much. And I've heard that psychologists, when, when people come in to talk to them, often they talk about the people in their life that are giving them trouble. <laughs> and it's, it's made my life so much easier. It's not perfect. And George says that in the book. He says that sometimes you're the one who's out of control and upset about something. But it's, it's really helped me keep a more, uh, keep a better baseline and just get along with people better and understand people and not get upset about things that go wrong in conversations and at home, at work, whatever. So, yeah. So how were your relationships through this, Matthew? Like what was happening, who was in your life and kind of what was the impact on them and what, what did you have to work through with them? Yeah, I would have appreciated more, uh, more interactions with people my job was a little bit solitary. Uh, more interactions at work, I would have uh, would have enjoyed. Uh, friends and family, uh, everyone was supportive. No one really gave me a hard time. I uh, the city. I well, when I after I where I grew up uh, after high school, I went to another city to go to university, and that's when my disease hit. So I was kind of as everyone does going to university. They've got a lot of changes. To go through and I went to a city and got this disease uh, with that makes it painful and difficult to talk to people so plus back in the 90s uh, I know things have improved a lot more in the last 10 years especially the last year of COVID with mental health but in the 90s I just couldn't walk up to people on the street and talk about talk about mental health I can talk about talk about mental health with strangers in the grocery store now in the last so many years mm-hmm. because of Canada here, the Bell Let's Talk program that was huge okay. for getting people talking about mental health. And but in the 90s, I kind of had to zip it. And uh, if I wanted to talk to somebody about mental health or depression, I had to sort of ease that into the conversation after, you know, sort of sniffing them out, like, will they be okay with me talking about this? Mm-hmm. And so yeah, but at the same time, I I I don't have too many complaints, but I would have it's Plus, it's hard, you know, someone going through schizophrenia or, or me- other severe mental illness, you might not want to reach out to them. It's just, it's, uh, you know, I don't know them that well. Uh, People are oftentimes very fearful, too, as well, right? Because if you say to someone, hey, how are you doing? They, they're saying I'm having a bad day. Yeah, that, that, that kind of directs the conversation. But if you say, well, I've been struggling with mental health, and that, you know, oftentimes I think most people get afraid of what what. Sh- what should I say? What should I not say? You know, am I yeah. going to you know, say something wrong and make that hurt that person? But what you're saying is, in fact, the opposite was needed, um, you know, 
for you to just be able to dialogue openly about things. Yeah. And I mean, plus back then in the nineties, people didn't talk about mental health that very, very much at all. So it was, uh, the conversations we're seeing in the last so many years of people opening up, it's, it's, it's phenomenal, just absolutely phenomenal. And I'm so happy. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, COVID has been horrible. I, and I, I, but the mental health benefits of talking about the stuff is, Oh, it's just wonderful. Yeah, so one positive thing that has come out of COVID, I think you're right, you hit it on the head there, the nail on the head is that in fact, now we're quite open to say, I'm, you know, I'm having a tough day, or I'm anxious, or, you know, I'm depressed, I haven't moved today, or, you know, I want to, you know, I'm not getting along with my husband and my children. <laughs> people are more open versus ever before when you'd ask the question, hey, how are you? Doing? Oh, I'm fine. How are you? And people are can be losing quite figuratively losing limbs and not sharing um, you know, that they're, they're having a tough day and it's, it's, it's normal and natural. It's human to, to have um, days that are not good. And there's nothing wrong with teaching. I think, especially our children about the vulnerability about saying, yeah, today's not a good day. Um, I'm having a rough time or I've had a tough day at work or I've had a conflict with, you know, X, Y, Z, or this isn't going well. I think that permissiveness models things that allows people around us to recognize, hey, it's okay to just be vulnerable. And that creates a a deeper level of connection as well. Thanks for tuning in to Authentic Living with Roxanne, creating the space for positive, healthy change. Roxanne is a keynote speaker, psychotherapist, and coach. To work with Roxanne, visit roxanderhajcom slash blueprint. We'll see you next time on Authentic Living with Roxanne.